0: Welcome back for another episode of Cleantech Talk, where we at Cleantechnica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Want to own your own company and have a positive impact on the world? Home efficiency represents a great opportunity to do both. Follow a successful model, but pay no franchise fees and no royalties. Just visit homeefficiency.com to learn more about our white label business opportunity and start the next leg of your journey as a climate champion.
1: Okay, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. And today we have um, a really interesting conversation we're going to have with Carson Temme of Pivot Bio, who's doing a truly interesting set of work these days around. Reducing the carbon load of agriculture and improving agricultural leads—you know, part of that—you know, sixty years of the Green Revolution that we have. Karsten, why don't you start off just by introducing yourself and pivot by pivot bio? You know, any—you know, how did it come about? You know, what your concepts were, and you know, any interesting anecdotes that you have in play.
0: Well, thanks, and and glad to be here. I've been working with the team at Pivot uh, Bio to be able to build where we are today for just about 10 years now. Our company started in the fall of 2011, and we're on, on a mission to be able to, to help agriculture continue to improve so that we serve uh, generations. to uh, We make sure that our natural resources are resilient for the challenges ahead, and that the, the farmers that operate all the farms at the backbone of agriculture are able to pass those businesses on to the next generation to take over. And our contribution to that, that cause is rethinking what it means to deliver the nutrients that crops need. Can we come up with something that's a little bit better than, than fertilizer?
1: Yeah. And it, you came to it by an interesting path because your early degrees were biomedical technologies as, a bio, as opposed to agricultural you, you, but you pivoted for your PhD. You want to you want to tell us why that that shift you made. That sounds like a great place to start. And and for me, a little over twenty years ago,
0: I I attended the University of Iowa to learn about engineering. So I'm wired uh, as an engineer. I I like to solve problems using math and science and and thinking about the best ways to take ideas and and get them off the paper, and in, into the world around us. How do we, how do we come up with a better mousetrap for solving the problem that thwarts us every day? And at the University of Iowa, I was a biomedical engineering student. So tackling problems like how do we make better hearing aids or heart valves or hip implants? And uh, I had some funding from National Science Foundation for graduate school. So I was able to get a master's at the University of Iowa And at the same time, I took some entrepreneurship courses and really found that my passion was at the the confluence of academic discovery and getting those ideas out into the marketplace and specifically doing that through small teams, new organizations, uh, so startups that could create new businesses. And in the process, I also had an opportunity to attend graduate school for a PhD and the, the field of research that I studied for my PhD at uh, UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco was this nascent field of synthetic biology. Out of that research group pivot bio?
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating. Um, I'm just going to provide a little bit of contextual gloss for why I consider agriculture to be such a key climate piece. As I said to you in our preamble, little discussion, I've spent a lot of time looking across the solution space and looking at experts, and I've gone deep and wide on carbon capture and sequestration, mechanical and industrial processes. Uh, you know, looked at the chemistry, looked at the physics, and I've looked at the economics of it. Um, I, I know that they won't scale economically or viably to anything approaching the scale of the problem. They're you know five to seven times orders of magnitude off of the scale of the problem, and. As a result, I was looking therefore, for, you know, the tree planting initiatives. A trillion trees planted over the next couple of hundred years would have significant advantages. I looked at soil carbon capture and the glomalin pathway in the mycelium web underneath the soil and the disruptions caused by high tillage agriculture to that. You know, and so the long-term and short-term carbon capture of the soil and agriculture is currently disrupted by standard older processes. And, and most recently, I've been looking at the footprint of ammonia-based fertilizers, you know, there's $120 billion hydrogen market globally. 38% of that annually goes to ammonia-based fertilizers, you know, where ammonia is created from the hydrogen and the nitrogen is fixed with from the air. And then that is, you know, pushed onto fields by the tons, um, often over-fertilizing. And it's been a tremendous part of our green revolution, but it not only has the CO2 emissions of 10 to 35 times the mass of hydrogen. In CO2 from creating the hydrogen, but it also has challenges of releases of nitrous oxide after application. And of course, it washes into waterways and causes other challenges like algal blooms. And so, you know, there's a whole range of things that are in there. And my assertion is that, you know, low tillage agriculture, precision agriculture, and reduction of ammonia based fertilizers is a key mechanism to increase atmospheric drawdown of CO2 in a very useful way in a place we can actually make the change. And this is my first opportunity to talk to somebody who's really doing something that I hadn't even heard about until, you know, your your team reached out to me about changing the way the amount of ammonia-based fertilizer that we use. So that's kind of the gloss. It's a huge wedge in terms of climate actions and you're central to a part of it. What would you add to that kind of contextual statement?
0: I think that's a a great place to to spend a lot of conversation. And And, and maybe one other, one other dimension that I, my team thinks a lot about is from our, our customers perspective, our, our heroes perspective for us, farmers are our heroes in that whole equation and to grow any plant on this planet, we need sunlight to drive photosynthesis. It's our energy source, all biochemistry, all of biology needs water essentially to operate to to drive those enzymatic processes. And, and nitrogen is a core building block of all DNA and protein and ultimately biomass. So we need carbon and nitrogen together to, to make biology, to make life work. And uh, the farmers we serve, the, the way you get nitrogen into agriculture today is through fertilizer. But it's, it's such an inefficient delivery vehicle, we can do better. And fertilizer underserves our heroes of the story. And what we're trying to do at Pivot is, is simply find a more efficient way to get nitrogen into agriculture and, and to really make the entire global nitrogen cycle work. Uh, so a lot of what you hinted at is is where the confluence of the carbon cycle and nitrogen cycle reside. And and I think the ripple affects what we do at Pivot, the, the ability to think about a better delivery of vehicle for nitrogen into our fields and ultimately our crops. It, it improves the the overlap of the carbon and nitrogen cycles on a global basis, and, and that has ramifications
1: for all of us. Let's just be really precise about what you know. The better delivery mechanism is it's selected, cultivated, combined, potentially modified microbes, which are introduced to the soil as a supplement, which bind to the roots of plants and bind atmospheric nitrogen directly at, at point. Is that a correct assertion or some a paraphrase of what it is you're providing?
0: It is. And, and to simplify it even further, it's probiotics uh, that naturally live as part of the crop's microbiome. They live in the roots of the plant. And they're like a, a mini fertilizer factory for that crop. So instead of relying on a fertilizer factory that uses natural gas to convert nitrogen in the air into ammonia and then shipping that to a field and applying it with heavy machinery, the microbes, they get sugar from the plant and they produce enzymes that take the nitrogen gas in the air and turn it into into ammonia. And then they just share it back with the plant. And that is a natural process. It's a symbiosis that has existed for, for far longer than we've ever had fertilizer and it's something that is is simply in hibernation as a result. It's kind of the the byproduct of 100 years of heavy fertilizer use. So that's the, the core of our innovation, is, is to figure out how to let that flourish once again in our agricultural system.
1: It depends on the same thing that ammonia-based fertilizers depend on, which is that the atmosphere is 78% nitrogen. You know, the, the air that you and I are breathing and, you know, you know, breathing in and speaking through is 78% nitrogen. It's pervasive. And so the ammonia plants just suck it out of the atmosphere to bind with the uh, hydrogen to make ammonia based fertilizers. And your microbes just suck it out of the atmosphere because it's so present. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, most people don't know the atmospheric comp- composition and how prevalent nitrogen is. And I never think about it most days either. But, you know, do you actually have challenges explaining that to people?
0: It's fascinating on one level that, you know, you or I, we breathe in air with every breath and, and it, we, we learn and we think a lot about that interplay of needing oxygen and expelling carbon dioxide. And we learn in biology class that plants do the reverse of that and, and they, they can fix carbon through photosynthesis. And, and it's just so fascinating. And, And yet the majority of, the air around us is nitrogen gas and organisms that are not microbes. So animals, plants, humans, we can't, we can't do anything with that nitrogen in its gaseous form. We actually rely on microbes to, to take that gas and turn it into something we can use as a building block for our, our DNA or the protein in our body. And the, the breakthrough 100 years ago was that some German chemists figure out a way to make a catalyst in a big factory and use a lot of energy and high pressures to, to do what microbes can do. And what we did is we we found an industrial way to scale up how much nitrogen as a building block could make agriculture more productive. And it's it's kind of a long, tortuous cycle that has to happen to be able to convert that nitrogen into ammonia, to use 3% of the world's energy source today to drive that process at its industrial scale right now to ship all that fertilizer from factories to fields and and so the the beauty I think for us is just by shrinking that that cycle getting it back to natural symbiosis it has all these advantages for farmers and and it's a great business for us to be able to operate we've found that in in agriculture it's a concept that, that is is near and dear to, to all of the, the growers we serve. Nitrogen fixation, that's the, the scientific name for the process. It's something that is part of many agronomy courses. And students learn about nitrogen fixation in the context of legumes. And legumes are plants that actually build an organ to house the microbes and the roots that, that carry out this process. So the symbiosis is is more advanced, it's more evolved than non-legumes. For instance, all the cereal crops in the world, the microbes that carry out nitrogen fixation live in a loose association with roots. They live on the surface of the roots. And that means that that symbiosis isn't as tightly supportive of the plant's nutrient needs. And when we add fertilizer, uh, it causes a disruption to the symbiosis. So what we found is a lot of the, the farmers that, that we serve, they are very familiar with nitrogen fixation because it's a, uh, a topic that they learn about in, uh, in school. And, and the, the real interesting part of the conversation is, is when we talk about how it's possible, not just in legumes, but in cereal crops because of the innovations that, that
1: Pivot provides. And the, the uh, history of this, you know, before the Green Revolution started, the site, their plant crops were cycled through, and you know, every fourth year or so, a field would be left fallow, and clover or some other nitrogen-fixing legume plant would be planted and just le- and just let left there to re- replenish the nitrogen in the field in the soil. You know, and part of the ma- massive improvement in productivity in agriculture was removing a quarter of the fields from being fallow every year by adding the nitrogen separately. So what you're doing is you're taking the ability from, if I understand it, from clover and other uh, legumes to fix nitrogen and adding them to corn and grain crops in such a way that they bind with the roots and provide the same value proposition, providing at point source, very precision nitrogen delivery to the roots of the plant. Is that a fair assertion?
0: It is. It's simply taking the, the same relationship that exists today between legumes and subset of their microbiome and rediscovering and, and reawakening that, that same portion of the microbiome in all of the, the cereal crops in
1: the world. Yeah. So let's talk about that because you know I know how some biotechnologies work. It's some of it is discovered, some of it is manipulated and bred. So many of our crops are uh, so far removed from the original source materials, like bananas are unrecognizable as just one obvious exception. And then now we have the ability to actually directly manipulate the genome. So, you know, within the bounds of intellectual capital, you know, and your, your stuff you need to keep hold, close to your chest, what's the ratio of finding the right microbes and breeding the right microbes or manipulating the microbes? For us, the process is, is really a, a few key steps. One core innovation
0: at Pivot is, is a realization that of the, take for instance, corn, it's microbiome. Many, many, many species, hundreds or thousands of species live in very close proximity to the the root system. And a small fraction of those species already carry the genetics that can enable this process of nitrogen fixation. Inside of their genome are are uh, the complete instructions to be able to make the enzymes that convert nitrogen gas in the air into ammonia for the plant. And the challenge is, just like in fertilizer factories, making those enzymes operate requires a lot of energy. And so every time that the microbes can sense fertilizer in the soil, they stop making those enzymes. Their DNA contains instructions that say, don't express the, the genes that, that make these enzymes operate. And, and so our innovation at Pivot is, is to discover those microbes and reverse engineer map their, their DNA so we know where in the genome the, the instructions for nitrogen fixation reside, and then use any host of, of technologies to be able to wake those enzymes back up. Sometimes that, that can be as, as simple as some gene editing to, to break the feedback loop on, on how they sense fertilizer in the environment and, and make that decision to produce the nitrogen-fixing enzymes. And sometimes we use more classical tools to be able to, to uh, break that feedback loop that keeps them from making the, the necessary enzymes. And, and the result then is a set of microbes that no longer are sensitive to Using fertilizer in their environment. They, they will produce the enzymes and, and produce uh, fixed nitrogen for the crop, uh, even if we're adding them back into a field that has some fertilizer usage.
1: That's fascinating. I, I hadn't realized it was a suppression strategy, but my understanding of a biological processes suppression is often a very effective way to achieve the results you get. It's not something we think about from a technical, mechanical world where I spent more of my time because you, know, you have to add stuff and you have to turn things on. But this is more like you've got this complex set of enabled use cases, some of which trigger and some which don't, and you're just removing the sensitivity to the things which prevent them from triggering. You know, uh, you know I, I think it would be really useful for audience just to say, here's a specific example, like pick corn or a cereal crop, and say, here's kind of the set of things we did with that to really cement it um, in something that people can internalize, do you have an example close to hand?
0: Well, I maybe I'll I'll, I'll kind of describe I- exactly what's going on in, in our product that uh, has been on the market for the last three years, Pivot Proven. Uh, it's used by U.S. corn growers today on on more than a million acre more than a million acres of of cropland to to supply a portion of the nitrogen that that crop needs. And, and, and kind of the way I describe that relationship with, between the, the plants and the microbes to, to my kids is think about that plant just like a big solar panel. And, and it's not making electricity. It's, it's taking the, the sunlight and fixing carbon and making sugars. And, and a lot of that fixed carbon is used to build the, the biomass of the plant, the leaves, the grain. And, and about 30 or 40% of that that sugar is actually exuded out the roots to feed microbes in the soil. And as part of that symbiosis, the, the primary uh, function of the crop microbiome uh, historically was to produce nitrogen for the crop. So it's, it's the symbiosis that in exchange for carbon in the form of sugars, the microbes fix nitrogen from the air and turn it into ammonia for the crop to have the other key building block of, of biomass. And what happens is uh, when we add fertilizer to that field, the microbes sense uh, sufficient nitrogen in and around the roots. And to conserve energy, they stop making the enzymes for fixing nitrogen. So similar to what we kind of just described a few minutes ago. And and so what Pivot did is one of our earliest team members, everybody on the team to, to help find sources of agricultural soil. And so we could go sleuth and find microbes that, that could fix nitrogen and have an association with crops. So this particular team member of ours got uh, a pail of soil from some of her family's agricultural land in Missouri. And, and we grew some corn seedlings in that, uh, in that soil, then uprooted those plants, washed away all the soil, and then ground up the roots. Uh, and inside of that uh, that mixture were some microbes that both had a close association with the crop and had all of the, the instructions inside of their DNA to be able to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. Uh, so we, we were able to isolate those microbes, sequence their genome. We were able to, to begin to understand how, how they live, what kinds of sugars they depend on, how their relationship with the plant works. And in the process, we also were able to disrupt that feedback loop, the negative feedback loop that connect the, the proteins they use to sense the environment, the nitrogen in the environment, from the enzymes that perform nitrogen fixation. And then we went through a process to be able to test how effectively they could supply nitrogen to the crop. And so in the greenhouse, in the field, we would do experiments where we would, at the time we planted a corn seed, add our microbes into the, the same system. So we would either coat the the corn seed with our microbes or uh, out in a field setting as the, the planter would open up a furrow and drop a seed in into the soil. We would add a small um, spray of our microbes on top of the seed and then close up the furrow in the soil. And when the, the plant's roots begin to germinate, our microbes adhere to that root system and, and begin that symbiosis with the crop where they depend on the crop for a nutrient source, their their energy, and in exchange, they start producing the enzymes for nitrogen fixation, and then they convert nitrogen in the air into ammonia for the plant, and, and that's the contribution that, that we're able to measure through a number of types of assays, whether it's uh, measuring the total amount of nitrogen in the plant or using some different molecular or Uh, isotopic tracers in a a laboratory or greenhouse setting to to precisely quantify how that nitrogen gets from the air through the microbe and into the plant. And and the result of that development process then was a microbe that we could package up, we could formulate so it could sit on the shelf and work with the, the practices a farmer uses today to manage their field. And be a source of nitrogen throughout the growing season, kind of spoon-feeding the plant uh, nitrogen on a daily basis. And being a better delivery vehicle for nitrogen into the crop than the way we would normally manage fertilizer today.
1: And the results are big. I mean, it's 40 pounds. The, the number you use is 40 pounds of fertilizer, um, of ammonia-based fertilizer reduced for an acre of corn, if my my memory serves, and with a six to 7% increase in corn yield. Are those numbers roughly right?
0: Well, I'll shift that around a little bit. And I'll say, think about it as, as replacing our source of nitrogen. What's replacing the delivery vehicle for how we get that nitrogen in the crop? So crop physiology, every plant, because it is a composition of DNA proteins, uh, carbohydrates, there's a requirement for a minimum amount of nitrogen in that in that plant. So for corn, in our example we've been talking about, every bushel of of corn that is produced, every bushel of grain produced, it requires about a pound of nitrogen to produce that that bushel of grain. And what we're trying to do is is replace the vehicle that we're using to get that nitrogen to the crop and and so, our, our product, Pivot BioProven 40, that we've we've just announced the launch of, it's replacing 40 pounds of uh, nitrogen fertilizer that otherwise would be required to grow that crop. And our microbes are supplying that nitrogen for the crop. the The added benefit for the grower is is that uh, fertilizer it it's inefficient because it I, it, it, it's something we have to add to the field at all the wrong times. And about half of fertilizer globally is lost to the environment. And oftentimes it's lost to the environment in a way that creates pollution, either water pollution or air pollution. And so that inefficiency simply means that you spend a dollar on fertilizer today and only about 50, per, 50 cents on the dollar is turning into something that is grain. That is, is something you can you can sell and, uh, and recoup that investment on your uh, your fertilizer spend, and uh, at Pivot, we simply want to take that dollar you spend and make sure that all of it is getting in to the crop uh, to be able to power uh, the generation of of grain and
1: revenue. And now, I, I didn't see that you had indicated it. It replaced. It. I don't think your claim is that it replaces ammonia-based fertilizers entirely. It reduces the requirement to add them. Is that still a true statement with the Proven Forty or?
0: So it's, it's something where we're not quite yet to replace all of the fertilizer that a, a corn farmer needs. And, and so uh, I, I think the USDA average corn yield last year was something like about 175 bushels per acre. And so that means that that crop needs roughly 175 pounds of nitrogen on every acre inside of the crop to make, uh, to make that harvest possible. And, and so today, that, that product, Pivot Bio Proven 40, is going to supply about 40 pounds of uh, of what's needed. And, and as we improve the uh, the effectiveness of our microbes, uh, the path is one where we will eventually replace the need for fertilizer entirely. That that 175 pounds of, of nitrogen needed to to produce that uh, that harvest is entirely supplied by
1: uh, our microbes. Yeah, and that's 25, so it's, 20 it's to 25% a, a, a reduction. Ounce. Yeah, that's a yeah, astounding yeah. percentage. Now, let's just play that those numbers out a bit. You're already a million acres under fertilization in the United States alone. And so, just multiplying, that's 40 million pounds of fertilizer displaced um, with all the CO2 emissions and all the pollution that goes with that. That's a, a very powerful, potent environmental wind and scaling it up further, 38% of land mass is under agriculture today, you know, it's about 5 billion hectares, which turns into, I think about 12.5 billion acres uh, globally. And so you kind of like go up several orders of magnitude from that million acres to billions of acres. And and you kind of start looking at the number of pounds of displacement that you're already able to provide across certain crops. And you start saying this is a big deal, you know. Uh, one of the contextual pieces is that you know, piece of the hydrogen market. You know, thirty-eight uh, percent of all hydrogen produced is used in ammonia-based fertilizers. With all those CO two emissions, the projection I make is that we'll be actually reducing ammonia usage or uh, ammonia-based fertilizer usage over the next forty years due to the combination of low tillage agriculture, precision agriculture, and stuff like pivot bios technology which you know finds cheaper better faster alternative ways to unlock the capabilities so it, it you know it's i'm just reflecting and i'm I'm failing completely to come up with a follow-on question but what are of that morass of words do you want to respond to if anything in terms of that scale of the, the opportunity
0: well maybe maybe i one comment from a macro view, and then one comment from maybe a, a, a micro view. And that's, so today, there's three crops um, that, that are our center of focus for us,
1: and, and, and really
0: drive a lot of what we do at Pivot Bio, And that's uh, corn, wheat, and rice. And it's because those three crops alone consume more than 50% of our global nitrogen fertilizer. And, and so a lot of what we think about is how do we make an impact on uh, the growers that are relying on nitrogen fertilizer to, to manage those crops. And then what can we do for any other crop that they might rotate into? Because if we can have an impact in, in, in those three crops and the associated rotational crops, we've done a massive, a massive lift in, in being able to increase the efficiency of how the system works. And, and I, I think that is better for uh, farmers' bottom lines. It's better for the resiliency of our natural resources. And and honestly, it's it's going to be great for thinking about the efficiency of our ag productivity over the, the decades to come. Yeah, the, uh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just reflecting on that. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the green revolution concept that people just underappreciate. Um, there's an anti-GMO sentiment you know, that a subset of the populace has, which we'll talk about briefly, because I'm sure you run into that sometimes. But the concept, right now we produce more calories from agriculture than the world can consume. Well, the combined biomass from sea and stuff like that. We are more efficient. We're producing vastly more calories and nutrients and proteins that are of value to the human consumption out of every field than we've ever seen before. And yet, a recent study found that the advances since 1980 in terms of crop productivity and field productivity, 21% of those have been lost to climate change. So we've made these massive advances, even in the past 40 years, and yet we're losing a substantial proportion of them to climate change. And so that resiliency you talk to becomes very important, the ability to create crops and create uh, agricultural systems, which are more adaptable and less dependent upon certain classes of more harmful things. So, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking through the implications there and it's quite big and, and this is part of the reason by the way I, you know one of my uh, hypotheses is that the global hydrogen market will diminish not increase because 38 percent goes to ammonia as we're discussing you're working to get rid of those in the three major food crops which represent over 50 percent um, but you may not have known this 55 percent of hydrogen is used in oil refineries also going to go away so
0: so maybe this, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll jump in and, and kind of and, and maybe take things to a micro level. Yeah. And, 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 and so one of the things I, I, I think about a lot is if, if, we could, if we could rethink what that delivery of a pound of nitrogen, not to the field, but a pound of nitrogen, ensuring that it gets in the crop and, and that half of it's not lost um, to the environment before it gets to the crop. The the numbers can be astounding um, just at a single, thinking about it through the example of a single pound. And so uh, a pound delivered directly into the crop means that there's about three pounds of CO2 equivalents that, uh, that were averted in the form of greenhouse gas emissions from the manufacturing, the transportation and logistics process tied to fertilizer use. So a pound of nitrogen that is, is put directly into the crop and not lost to the environment or uh, replaces that, that pound of fertilizer means three of CO2 equivalents from manufacturing and shipping that, that we just avert, that mm-hmm. are permanently uh, removed from the system. Uh, and then there's another six uh, pounds uh, of CO2 equivalents that we don't emit on the farm. And that's in the form of nitrous oxide emissions. Yep. Uh, and on top of that, then there's a pound and a half of nitrate that doesn't flow into our waterways and lead to the algal blooms that, that you had mentioned. And so one pound of fertilizer replaced by one pound of pivot bioproven nitrogen ends up with this ripple effect that, that can be massive. And that's just three portions of uh, of the entire system, the the upstream manufacturing, the -the on-the-farm emissions, and then the downstream runoff. And and on top of it, the long-term health of our soils is very dependent on the nitrogen cycle. The ability to ensure we have high levels of organic matter that, um, that are persistent across time depends on very small amounts of inorganic nitrogen in the soil. And when we use a lot of inorganic fertilizer, as our delivery mechanism to get nitrogen into the crop, we completely offset that balance. And, and it, it creates the conditions to degrade soil health across time.
1: And we, we have been having that problem, I mean, even in major Delta areas of the former swampland, like the Holland Marsh agricultural zone, north of Toronto area I'm familiar with, you've know, got 20 feet of topsoil, but they were losing an inch a year. You know, it was just challenging we need to maintain soil health and we need to maintain soil volume um, and maintain the biology. And that gets into the question. I've mentioned low tillage agricultural a couple of times. You, you reference that right now, you, a furrow is opened, seed goes in, and the, the spray gets occurred or the seeds get coated. But that's, that indi- indicates a standard tillage model. Are you exploring low tillage delivery mechanisms for this as well, or are you leaving that to third parties? Uh, could you talk more about it uh, about the concept of low tillage from your perspective?
0: I, I think, from my perspective, I our job at, at Pivot
1: is is to be able to
0: design products that are just easy to use. Like life should get easier for every farmer because of what we can do to remove complexity uh, and simplify how you use our product. So the the goal for us is somehow eliminate times that you need to make a a path through the field with your heavy machinery. So if we could eliminate all those times you need to go into the field just to apply fertilizer, and and all you need to be doing is plant the seeds, because our microbes are somehow part of that process of planting the seeds, life gets a little bit easier. If thinking about how you manage that nitrogen budget uh, is complicated today because it's hard to predict when the weather is going to, enable you to, to get into the field uh, when the weather is going to potentially threaten to wash the fertilizer away. And all of that can get simpler because you just, you added our microbes at the same time the seeds got planted, and then they are resident, latched onto the roots of the plant, producing that nitrogen on a daily basis, and you know, perfectly matched to the, the needs of the crop hopefully that, that peace of mind and that the, um, sophistication of the performance of the product means uh, managing the acres a lot easier. And so the way we, we take on the challenge internally is to think uh, about how to fit with uh, any type of planting strategy or any land management strategy that our customers might be employing. And, and ideally, if we can make it possible so our microbes fit with the the equipment that you have today. And, and ideally something is as, as simple as you know, the seed comes pre-coated with the microbes on it that works with, with any kind of tillage system.
1: Yeah. And that, that makes sense to me uh, for the, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be paying attention to the difference between high and low tillage. Uh, tilling is what you, you know, you remember from the old things where somebody's an ox is pulling a hoe behind, uh, you know, a, uh, and they're turning over a furrow of soil and they're exposing all the worms and that enables you to put on to plant stuff in it and to add fertilizer and have it actually get into the soil. Low tillage is not doing that where you punch a hole in healthy soil where you put the seed and you put in micro and use typically precision agriculture to add the explicit things the the seed needs and you use a lot less ammonia-based fertilizer because you know it's not focused that way. Now, the reason I, I got in, in in thinking about high, you know low tillage versus high tillage, I alluded to this earlier, was the glomalin protein on the roots of mushrooms, the mycelium roots under the soil, and they provide while soil itself, high tillage emits a lot of the CO2 that is captured in the short term the mycelium roots and their glomalin proteins are the long-term pathway for long-term soil sequestration of carbon. And so there's a short-term benefit to low tillage where the the plant life isn't just, the under um, soil biome isn't exposed to a lot of oxygen. So it degrades into CO2, but the long-term that mycelium network takes about 150 years to draw down the net CO2 in the soil into locked away sequestered carbon. And so, you know, I'm focused on high tillage and low tillage as a key carbon wedge for um, long-term carbon sequestration in a biological scale model with 38% of the the land under under agriculture. That's a big lever to pull. And and that kind of gets to, from a lever perspective, you talk about your farmers and you talk about your heroes and I tend to think about agribusinesses because there's a few hundred major agribusinesses that have the majority of the surface of the earth under agriculture. And that's a target you can actually hit with levers and stuff like that.
0: Thanks immensely. Uh, Enjoyed it. And I I look forward to a follow-up conversation soon.
1: Okay. Take care. You too.
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.